Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are continuing with our watch through of The Magician. So we are on season three, episode eight, six short stories about magic. Chris, can you give us a recap of what happens? Penny travels to the underworld to find the dead Benedict and the next key. When he finds him, Benedict tells Penny the library has the key. Penny ditches Benedict instead of working together to find it. In infiltrating the library, Penny encounters Sylvia, now working for the library in her afterlife, who takes him to see Cassandra, the person responsible for writing all the people's stories in the library, as she can see the future. Cassandra writes stories for Penny about Poppy, Fenn, Harriet, Elliot, and Alice. Fenn sees a fairy serving Irene McAllister, and when she and Julie investigate, they find out that the white powder the McAllisters use for magic is made from dismembering and killing fairies. Quentin, Katie, Harriet, and Poppy travel to the Underworld Library with the help of Traveler Victoria, who makes a bridge to the Mirror World. However, the group splinters as the plan goes wrong, when Harriet stops to confront Zelda, who we find out is actually Harriet's mother. We also see that the library is using the fairy powder to keep their power. Penny is able to retrieve the key and get it back to Quentin and Katie from Benedict, who originally lied about his whereabouts in a misguided attempt to make Penny be his friend. As they all try to escape, Gavin breaks the mirror bridge with Victoria and Harriet still inside. At the end of the episode, Sylvia stops Penny from escaping the underworld and turns him into the library, to which he owes a million-year debt of service. Penny, no! Poor Penny. Well, this is a great episode. Why don't we get into it? What are your magic moments? So many. I mean, just the the handwritten introduction screens Mm -hmm. to help kind of highlight that this episode's structure is different Mm -hmm. in that it is presenting something to the audience in a different way, uh, I think is is a really effective tool. Yeah, it's kind of like almost a callback to when Quentin was narrating the last episode of the first season. Totally. Yeah, yeah. When they go to the Library of the Netherlands... We see the establishing shot of the crumbling planet that we've seen for the mm-hmm. Netherlands before. And every time I see that, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. This is what the Netherlands looks like. <laughs> but it also just made me think about what if this was someone's first episode? And they're just like, what is this screen <laughs> of a destroyed planet? What's happening here? There are, of course, some great lines from this episode. Uh, the fact that Penny gets to Benedict by bribing the guards with information about Game of Thrones, <laughs> which he completely makes up. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I know he was making it up. Yeah, yeah. It was very, very well done. Very funny. How did he get so many dragons? Well, that is the question. <laughs> <laughs> Elliot describes Fillory as being full of animals that are smarter than they're supposed to be. And humans who are so much dumber. (laughs) Which is not a great word to use, but (laughs) is very funny. Yes. (laughs) And then I also chuckled every time Gavin called Alice a library groupie or someone with a knowledge boner or a book tart. Yeah. (laughs) Of course, the book tart. Yes, exactly. Uh, All of those I thought were (laughs) very, very funny uses of language that is often used in regards to 
sex against women, mm-hmm. uh, but here being used about her desire for knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good. <laughs> and that, like, these are terms that probably many librarians exactly. use because this is a thing. <laughs> yeah, this is something that's already established. Yeah. Very good. But, I mean, finally, we have to say just the the way that Harriet's story was produced mm-hmm. and how it does not have sound, yet you are still seeing all of this amazing storytelling. Yeah, just a, a really, really wonderful, I think, scene of if this is going to be her story, this is the way to tell it. And it's told that way until the very end with the mirror crash. And that mirror crash is the only sound, which obviously breaks that POV of being in Harriet's Mm -hmm. perspective, but also provides the drama of that moment Mm -hmm. um, in a really effective way. Yeah, and almost like it's switching to Zelda's Mm. POV there. But yeah, I mean... I think it would have been interesting if they had still had the mirror breaking not have sound because I don't really feel like you need the sound for the drama, but for, yeah, what Zelda's experiencing there. It's a shattering moment. Exactly. And I love how as we were watching Harriet's story in this episode, normally we're watching and taking notes on our laptops at the same time but for Harriet's story like it actually made us have to interact with the watching process differently Mm -hmm. in a way that yeah I think is is great that it does disrupt just the way things are commonly done um and we as viewers or us as note-taking podcasters like have to interact with that differently too. Yeah, and in, in a way more meaningfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because basically we had to, we would watch some of it and then we would pause so that we could take, you know, more notes um, and be able to look down at what we were saying, you know, typing and stuff sometimes and then push play again and then go back and forth with totally. that a few times. Which we'll do irregularly while we watch other episodes but this one it necessitated it in Mm -hmm. a in a way that that was unique absolutely what were your magic moments i mean the penny benedict interactions so good just so good i'm dead go away (laughs) until he finds out it's penny and then Mm -hmm. he's so excited comes gives him a huge hug and uh, when Penny was going to go back into the library to try to find the key, he's like, I can help you sneak. It's like, you don't <laughs> help people sneak. <laughs> then when Penny finally returns to um, Benedict at the end of the episode, mm-hmm. and he, he, Penny was just like, what? Like, if I couldn't find the key, what did you expect was going to happen? I would come hang out in your tent? And he... Benedict just says, I thought we'd spruce it up together. <laughs> yeah, I think he describes it as like a sad little tent or something like that. But, I think yeah. he uses dumb again. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> and it's just like that idea of Penny and Benedict sprucing up a tent together <laughs> is so ridiculous and hilarious and amazing. And there's probably some fan fiction out of that. Hopefully, and I may need to go find it. <laughs> Again, Penny is that special 
you know, unicorn, not in that sense, unicorn, but <laughs> that any relation, any romantic relationship he could be in with any of the characters is like one of the most interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I personally think he's more interesting with Alice than Quentin is mm-hmm. with Alice. Obviously, <laughs> there's plenty of pen, pe- Penton shippers, something like that. Uh, and him with Professor Sutherland, you know, it's just <laughs> Zelda, like any of them, him with them makes a, a coupling way more interesting. And that is definitely true yeah, with Benedict as well. <laughs> so much chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> he can't help it. <laughs> and um, Harvey Green is so funny and does such a good yes. job. Uh, again, a very side character. And if you haven't seen what we do in the shadows, like he is one of the main characters in that. But any little thing I've ever seen him in is always quite amusing. Yeah, so, he's so wonderful. Yeah, he's great. Also, an important thing to note is that the first thing that Penny says after seeing Sylvia is, I'm sorry for leaving you in the poison room. And she says that she's not mad about it anymore. He's like, I am. And it's just so Penny that the first thing he's going to do is apologize for this because he feels guilty about not, about leaving her, even though she told him he has to or else he's going to die too. Yeah. Which he did die anyway, Mm -hmm. but he had a little bit more time. Or his body did. (laughs) He likes to assert that he's not dead. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, um, yeah, it's just very, very penny. Absolutely. And, yeah, you know, him being angry, I think, comes at not just that he's angry that she died and he left her, but he's angry at the library for Mm -hmm. the way that they treat these books and the means they use to protect them. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, when you were mentioning Elliot's quote, another one from that same little statement he's making, he's like, I would like to make a statement. I hate Fillory. Yes. This <laughs> <laughs> is just, you know, he, he says the, the quote you were talking about, and we've seen how many problems he's had to deal with in Fillory, and not just regular problems that people would have if they're in a position of power like that and over tons of people, but also just that you have the magical element (laughs) that can throw all sorts of weird wrenches and things like people being turned into rats and, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. But then he says that, like, it saved me when I was drowning and... Now I'm trying to save it. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you see the care that he has, but he's also not going to be unrealistic about the fact that he hates Fillory (laughs) at the same time he loves it. And, you know, it's his home and he's chosen to go back even when it kicked him out, you know? Yeah. And I think that that is very effective here is that he is arguing this because this shows that He's not just a earthling who's coming here and privileged because he's chosen as high king and is doing this because it makes him happy, right? That, sure, Mm -hmm. there's colonialism involved. That exists. Mm -hmm. But he is doing this not for his own gain, but because of what Fillory has done for him and what he wants to do for Fillory. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he would have a much happier time back on Earth than he would in Fillory, especially as he's being constantly threatened by fairies. Yeah. And yeah, he's not just a Fillory and Further book fan. It sounds fun, too, and oh, so excited, let's go to Fillory, you know, and then when it's not how you thought it would be or hoped it would be or thing, bad things keep happening, then you just abandon it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Quentin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he and Margot, yeah, are, are, have stuck it out and exactly. tried to make things better. But why don't we go into our setting and society section? What were you noticing? Well, one of the, the major things that was so obvious early on was how the underworld has changed mm-hmm. and how things are clearly going wrong there without magic, that the loss of magic extends not only to all universes in the living realm, but also to the underworld. <laughs> yeah, very interesting idea. Mm-hmm. And the way they chose to represent this, I found very, very interesting because, you know, with the systems being down, all of these newly departed souls are in what they call temporary housing, Mm -hmm. these tents in fields, essentially, that are there. This, I think, is purposely done in contrast to the library, which Bendik mentions is the only place in the underworld that is still functioning, that still has power. And we see why they have that power through mm-hmm. the course of this episode. But I think even before that, right as we're being introduced to this, the visualization of this temporary housing versus the way the library's branch in the underworld is structured, I think is really emblematic of some of these power imbalances. Uh, because the architecture for the library branch is so closed off. We see Penny have to not only go above, go over this fence a few times, but we don't see open doors. We don't mm-hmm. see, you know, so many different kinds of things. Like when I think about a, a library and the way that a library hopefully is designed, it's welcoming because it's supposed to be something that the community is able to use as a service. And the library in The Magicians has been criticized throughout uh, as being the opposite of that, being something that tries to hoard knowledge and to be exclusive about who has access to that knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the architecture, it reminded me a lot of the chapter in the seminal LA history book, City of Quartz by Mike Davis, where this leftist historian, journalist, uh, Mike Davis, argues that architecture of Los Angeles, especially in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, started turning more and more and more into fortress-style architecture, military-style architecture, architecture that is meant to exclude. Mm -hmm. And that this was one of the tactics of the elites in L.A. to try to create physical barriers between themselves and economically disadvantaged communities uh, and unhoused people and things like that. And so, you know, in residential architecture, this meant that there were a lot more gated communities that were able to hire their own security and things like that. 
but we also saw this in public sector architecture with actual libraries that have huge concrete walls and fences outside of them. Mm. With government buildings that are very, very fortress-looking in their architecture, and with massive construction projects to build jails within the city. Right in downtown LA, there is this massive jail structure just a couple blocks away from Chinatown and Little Tokyo and City Hall. So, yeah, I found, you know, having that book chapter really influenced the way that I look at the city that I spend so much time thinking about. Just the way that the library was represented in contrast with those temporary housing really spoke to these kinds of physical barriers meant to exclude disadvantaged people. Mm. Um, you know, they looked like they're, they're unhoused in a very specific kind of way. And a library and many other public services are meant to alleviate that kind of suffering, to provide housing, provide services to people and the best libraries do do that and i think the la public library does an amazing job of that but we also see how the worst parts of the library's philosophy of gatekeeping knowledge is directly impacting these communities mm -hmm. yeah it's, it's a completely different reality even if they're sharing the same space because of what's cut off um yeah interesting mm-hmm I also thought it was really interesting because Zelda mentions in, in during Harriet's story part, she calls Harriet's friends untrained magicians. Mm -hmm. And Harriet's like, they go to break bills. And so before we saw the divide between break bills students and hedge witches. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing another divide between the library or maybe master magicians and break bill students. And so there's these hierarchies of knowledge and power that, yeah, I, I think this is one of the first times we, we actually experienced someone viewing break bill students as dangerous, untrained magicians that don't know mm -hmm. what they're doing with magic. People could get hurt, you know? And yeah, it's just it's interesting. Yeah, earlier in this episode, Penny says, we're better than Hedges. Mm -hmm. And to have that happening in the exact same episode that, yeah, Breakville students are called untrained magicians, I think mm -hmm. is really, really important to see that, that dichotomy. Absolutely. Another thing that I thought was interesting, and then we'll go back to more of your other points, but still on this underworld, library, all of that situation with this temporary housing because magic is gone they can't process everyone like they used to just kind of thinking about how reliant we are particularly in urbanized areas or very developed countries it's like yeah if a power plant goes down <laughs> we're all lost <laughs> if something happened with the sewage systems what are we gonna do mm -hmm. you know like we're so reliant on so many systems that if one were to cease to function, everything would break down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and again, I think the show is doing a great job of exploring the the world after magic is lost. Mm -hmm. And they're they're having that impact every aspect of the world they've built. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
One piece of world building they they don't exactly explore, though, is why Cassandra looks like Alice. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that choice has always been like, but but why though? Oh, I, I don't understand. Yeah. It's not even like she wasn't in it, you know, like when she was a Niffin mm-hmm. and you didn't see her for a while, you know, but it's, that's not the circumstance. Exactly. Yeah. And for those who this is your first time watching, it never gets explained. No. Uh, and so maybe this is just one of those things that they thought they might explain if they had more seasons mm-hmm. or they just thought it would be something interesting, a way to mess with the, the fans, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever it might be. But the person that cast for that role got sick. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, or maybe it's just supposed to be, like, weird, mind-bendy, like, well, when you have different timelines and gods and time magic, anything could happen. Yeah, one of my theories was also just that she looks like Alice to Penny, but maybe other people who see Cassandra would see Hmm. her as looking different, particularly because we are technically in Penny's story for Mm -hmm. that, and that's an element of perspective for me, that was kind of the the one theory that I was like, oh, at least there's something interesting there mm-hmm. that, yeah, maybe Penny sees Alice as being the most knowledgeable person he knows or the person who has been cursed the most by magic or, or something else that could be something interesting there. But the show certainly doesn't do anything to, <laughs> to provide those explanations. Yeah. Maybe in time loop number 17... Alice was touched by a weeping angel mm. and went back thousands of years and was lost in time and to the point where she doesn't remember the beast and that whole storyline. Sounds legit to me. I mean, as legit as anything can be yeah. in <laughs> The Magicians or Doctor Who. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then my last thing here is just how this episode really brings to the fore the ways that they've been kind of hinting at how the greater and greater reliance on magical creatures that inherently have magic Mm -hmm. and the exploitation of those creatures by magicians has been going on throughout, but really, yeah, comes to a head here where not only do we find out that the powder is made from fairies, but we also see Victoria die Uh, because she is a traveler and her blood is necessary to create this magic spell. And that means that she's not only risking things, but when the plans go wrong, she's one of the ones who gets the brunt of the repercussions. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that they, this episode's really highlighting how that exploitation impacts those communities who are exploited and, that highlights the deep injustice that exists in all sorts of systems that rely on exploitation, which, hey, our whole world does. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think Penny is another great example yeah. in this episode because he's caught and forced to do what he doesn't want to do, what he was avoiding doing because he's quote, the only person who could go get the key and all of that, which is how people ask him to help and and have continually made use of his body to take them all over 
or even with Martin at the beginning of season one, go help with this spell so he can come through. You know, Penny is constantly being used or asked to risk his life, use his magic, use himself for others. And in the end, we know that Zelda already knows about this quest for the seven keys and that they're on the quest and trying to so did he really need to go down there to get the key mm-hmm. and now he's been caught so yeah i i think that's yeah a really important point of how magical beings are being used as a means to whatever end yeah 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 and i mean you could also say the exploitation of cassandra too mm-hmm. here in this episode and how the library is has always been exploitative, but how their exploitations change as their circumstances change. Because at least before when they were able to mass produce Cassandra's writings, arguably the most powerful thing about the library was that they had the knowledge of everything that was going to happen. But now they no longer have that. They no longer can say, oh, well, we know how the quest of the Seven Keys is going to end. We know what's going to happen with Penny. We know what's going to happen with everything. So they turn to, yeah, the fairy powder to augment their power so that they can remain in power mm-hmm. regardless of who it exploits. Yeah. Yeah. What other aspects of setting in society did you have? Yeah. The other main one that I was thinking about is this whole idea of the fairies being enslaved with the McAllisters mm-hmm. and people using their bodies for w- whatever they want, <laughs> whether yeah. it's cleaning or literally cutting off their leg, grinding down their bones to snort so that they can do other magic. You know, when Fen was talking with Julia about the situation and saying, well, you're better off if these fairies are enslaved, if that's actually what's happening. And Julia says, no one is better off with slavery. And I question that line mm-hmm. because in a moral sense, of course, in a in a sense of destroying your own humanity yeah. by doing heinous things, sure. But most people in... The most developed countries thrive off of modern day slavery. You know, whether that's the bananas that you're eating, which nourish your own body, being picked by child laborers Mm -hmm. or anything, the clothes we're wearing, the uh, electronics we use to do our jobs, the, yeah, the food we eat. The things that we use on a daily basis, all of these things are brought to us through capitalist exploitation of Asian, Latinx, and African bodies, primarily in modern day slavery situations. So morally, obviously, no one is better off mm-hmm. with slavery, but... For most of us and for probably anybody listening to this podcast, like, no, we benefit from enslavement of people. We benefit from the labor exploitation. We benefit from the sweatshops. Basically, any anything we enjoy comes from that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that 
it's kind of a naive quote. So many societies, even throughout history, have been built on enslavement. And so, yeah, it, it was just kind of like, oh, this sounds nice kind of line. But if we're actually going to look at the difficult things in the world, if we're actually going to say this is wrong, what they're doing to the fairies, then we also have to confront this is wrong the thing that I'm eating, the thing that I'm wearing, the thing, you know, uh, and yeah. try to do better with how we're using our money, try to do better with how we're trying to pressure our governments or companies or whatever it is to do better and mm -hmm. care about suffering. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, that comes in multiple forms, right? Capitalism again, is inherently exploitative. And as much as possible, capitalists will attempt to exploit as far as they can, including <laughs> utilizing slavery. But also, yeah, there are legal mechanisms. As a reminder, slavery is still legal in the United States yeah. for incarcerated people. That is a law purposely written into our constitution. And so millions of inmates are providing slave labor Every like a dollar day, or whatever. If that, yeah. Every day in our country, completely legally, according to an amendment yeah, that was made, exactly, yeah. and overseen by our government. Like that's this is <laughs> part of our society, you know, very very intrinsically. So absolutely. Yeah. So so maybe it's a good thing that it's in here. Maybe it's showing Julia's privilege, mm -hmm. even though she's suffered through a lot of things she still comes from a very privileged background and she's willing to admit to that privilege mm -hmm. oftentimes but even if a person tries to not be defensive about their privilege tries to acknowledge it and do better things with it that doesn't mean that they don't have areas that they're just oblivious to totally um so Maybe it, it, it works in that way, but I don't necessarily think that that's what the writers were doing. <laughs> yeah, no. I think the structure of the episode is telling the message that Fen was wrong in that conversation. That Fen saying was, Which but... <laughs> totally. Yeah, I mean they're both wrong. But yeah. the episode, their their journey, right? Fen's short story is about her having this perspective that fairies are always bad and mm -hmm. anything that is bad that's happening to fairies is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And her meeting Sky, meeting the first fairy who has a name in the show, mm -hmm. and learning that she's incorrect, mm -hmm. learning the, and clearly having a, a journey to see how awful this treatment is and then to sympathize with Sky. Yeah, I don't think the show is trying to <laughs> illustrate Julia's privilege here, unfortunately. It's a good reading for us <laughs> smarter fans who. <laughs> have a much better grasp on what the show is doing and what it should be doing anyway. Maybe not smarter, but more educated. <laughs> Maybe not even that. I was, I was making a joke, an arrogant joke. Yay. <laughs> no, no, but a side note from that storyline. Also, I just thought it was really cool visuals when they first learned that, okay, this is fairies' bodies mm -hmm. that are being used for this magic powder, 
is when they enter like that kind of lab-ish room and it keeps switching back and forth between Fen's view and Julia's view mm. because Julia hasn't made a fairy deal so she can't see but Fen can and so like even on the plastic that was cutting off that lab room from the rest in one shot it has blood on it and in mm. another shot it's clear so I just thought that was a cool that is I cool. mean like obviously it's horrible but you know yeah you know. great storytelling yeah <laughs> but why don't we go into our next section which is discussing themes and schemes what did you notice this episode Yeah, I think the main one for this episode are these ideas of storytelling and what it means Mm -hmm. to be within a story. We see at the beginning of the episode, Quentin talking about how a quest is supposed to change the quester, Mm -hmm. that they, at the beginning of the quest, shouldn't be able to accomplish the quest because the quest itself changes them into the person who will be able to accomplish it. But then I think really interestingly, we see Harriet and Zelda having this fascinating discussion about either experiencing adventure, being in a story, or being safe and reading stories and gaining mm-hmm. knowledge. And this idea of kind of experience versus knowledge in contrast with one another. Yeah, I think that that's a, a fascinating theme to help further explore the ideology of the library itself. Mm. That... The library does not value lived experience. It does not value people's personal needs or desires. It values knowledge and the accumulation of that knowledge and the maintenance of what they see as safety. That means that they shut down people's ability to experience new things, Mm -hmm. uh, including learning that knowledge if they're not seen as equipped for it. And so, yeah, I think that this, this... kind of ideological battle between them is is already fascinating. But then when you connect that back to Quentin's focus on these quests that we've been talking about with his character throughout the series, it becomes, I think, another really interesting lens to see those journeys where he is wanting to be changed in these ways while also being self-hating in that the fact that he needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. He's excited about these quests, but he also hates the hard work that he has to do in these quests. <laughs> you know, he's not changing fast enough. Exactly. I should go because it's not what I would normally do. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Quentin, that's all you've been doing. <laughs> Seriously. Whatever the quest is, whenever there's something you see as a quest. Yeah. I mean, we know from the end of the first season when we find out that. So many versions of Quentin have given the power to Alice yeah. to fight the beast <laughs> that Quentin doesn't know what Quentin would normally do. Yeah. <laughs> Quentin is the volunteer tomato yes, because he exactly. always volunteers for the quest. Mm-hmm. But And I think that that also is really interesting, right? Because we're talking about how he doesn't know himself. He mm-hmm. doesn't have that self-knowledge, that ability to really reflect on his personality and his choices and where they come from because he's so focused on trying to find an experience or a journey, a quest, an accomplishment that will cure him, that will fix him. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why therapy is needed for every character in this show, but, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, for many, many people in the world is because it is something that has you 
confront yourself and gain knowledge about yourself and help to build habits based off of that knowledge of your interiority that will be helpful for you. It's not just about having the experience within the 55 minutes that you're in with your therapist, but it's about what you build off of that each week and each time you see them and in the times that you're not with them. And Mm -hmm. Quentin is not doing any of that work. Quentin is always focused on what he thinks he should be doing right now. Those should questions, I think, are, are really... I mean, certainly it's something that I've talked about with my therapist of, you know, how shoulds that you kind of tell yourself can be really problematic and harmful and unhealthy. Yeah, I think that here, Quentin framing quests as like, well, I need to become this better version of myself. I I should be the one who does this because this is my quest and the quest should change me and all these other kinds of things. Even that is him putting his change on the quest and not on his own work. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just, I find that a uh, a really great new angle to continue to dive into this, I think, theme of the entire show of what are narratives, what are people's places in narratives, what are the narratives they tell themselves, and how do narratives, either about yourself or the narratives that you are fond of in the world, impact you? How do stories impact you? And uh, Quentin is, I think, a, a great primary protagonist for the show because he is engaging with those questions so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And another important thing I think that the show is continually doing and, and is brought up here again in that same conversation Quentin is having with Poppy is when she says, how do we know it's not my quest too? Mm-hmm. Because he's thinking about it being his quest, his quest, his quest, or our quest, but she's just a new person that just came into it. It's not the same, you know. And this, yeah, pushback against just the way that narratives have been done, typically, and how that's not how real life is, you know? Yeah. A person can have a big impact on something and then you completely lose touch with them have no idea where they are because you just met them at a couple events in college or you know whatever the situation was and so yeah i think bringing into that conversation about narrative and the quest changing a person and and he's talking about the traditional formula of quests and she's being like what if this is something else or she she doesn't fit with the formula. <laughs> mm-hmm. I th- I think it's an interesting thing that even when Poppy is being completely reasonable here, we should go. It's not here. We've tried. It's not worth this other person's life. Let's go. It's not part of the quest in Quentin's mind. Mm. So he hesitates. Well, obviously Alice was there then, and and he was what's going on. So you know more more things were shoved in their faces but yeah i think uh, i i really enjoy how the show plays with kind of traditional forms of quest storytelling and epics absolutely another theme that i was noticing in this episode was one about loneliness and i think it's really interesting in this episode because it's not just like this episode's about loneliness mm-hmm. you know but 
by the way that they kind of unfold the stories of what's happening and they kind of start and end with Penny, we see it click for him when he realizes where the key has been all along. It's because he went back to the pages that he so quickly discarded at the beginning uh, with Poppy and Quentin, and I understand that's not what he wanted to read. Mm -hmm. But he missed the part where Poppy was saying that I can only go so long feeling completely alone and worthless before I break down and do something stupid. Mm -hmm. Her manner doesn't make it seem like she's lonely, but these are words coming out of her mouth. Yeah. But she was she had been alone for three weeks on a raft. Before that, mm. people she knew were dying. Before that, she got stuck in Fillory. And what she said during the conversation between her and Quentin, she said, the brave thing is to be you and accept the consequences. She mentioned how like she doesn't have a filter and she's tried, but it just doesn't work for her. Mm. And so maybe it offends a lot of people or people don't want to be close to her or spend a lot of time with her or whatever the situation is that have maybe contributed to loneliness for her in a way that she doesn't outwardly show most of the time. So it was not important information to Penny, but through actually reading that part more closely at the end he realized what benedict had done and that he had always had the key then when he gets to benedict benedict says i've spent so much of my life alone the thought of spending the rest of time alone was too much mm. that's why he did what he did he hid the key so that penny would eventually come back and they could spruce up the tent together mm -hmm. <laughs> and we know from before that Benedict jumped off the boat. He killed yeah. himself partially because of that crushing loneliness that he experienced in his isolation with his depressive thoughts. And so I like how this episode kind of shows that this is important, you know, and it's something that I'm sure a lot of our main cast experiences clearly Quentin but also Alice yeah. with her experiences Katie with hers Julia with hers Penny obviously you know there's just so many people Elliot Margot like so many people are experiencing things that are very isolating and so yeah I, I thought it was an interesting thing that loneliness is what really bookends the the arc of this episode mm -hmm. yeah that's a really interesting way of thinking about that yeah and then the other thing that i was thinking about you touched on a little bit before about knowledge and gatekeeping with the library mm. uh, we talked about that previously with break bills and gatekeeping against the hedges right and so yeah i like how they talked about that again but in this case with the library harriet saying the brochure makes it sound great. They collect knowledge, keep it safe, but from who? The library buries information. Only the people they choose get access. Really, it's just kind of heightening some of the ideological conflicts in season one. Mm -hmm. And it's bringing it to a 
not even galactic, but like all universes scale. And very, very, very interesting word choice. It buries information, evoking ideas of kills information. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's like a tomb rather than an archive in a way, you know? Yeah. But why don't we go into our last big section of the podcast from another point of view where we think about different characters' POVs. Who'd you bring? Yeah, I have a couple. First, Alice and her thoughts about the library. Mm. You know, she doesn't approve of this plan to go to the library. Uh, She doesn't go along with it. And she says that she won't risk lives to give them power that nobody should have. Mm-hmm. At the same time, she is grieving her own loss of knowledge. Yeah. So she decides to go to the library to try to gain that knowledge back. And in particular, we find out kind of what her goal is for having this knowledge. Not just that she wants to have it back so that she can kind of go back to being as knowledgeable as she was when she was a Niffin, but because she wants to develop a grand unified theory of magic. Mm-hmm. This seems to be her major goal. Uh, so much so that when she doesn't make a deal with Zelda, she immediately accuses her of not wanting her to finish this theory of magic, which certainly is possible, but I think I read as Alice being still so self-centered on her own priorities that she doesn't recognize that there might be other reasons outside of what she's trying to do that they may not be helping her. Mm-hmm. Because we've seen Alice in the past get obsessive <laughs> with some of her goals and her ideas and her willingness to accomplish those goals. And I think that we start seeing here what this kind of new obsession is, is developing this theory. And I think that that also is really illustrative of what Alice is struggling with. Because if she wants a grand unified theory of magic, that is something that creates order out of chaos. Mm -hmm. It's something that provides structure and answers to everything. If it's a grand universal theory, then anything can be explained through it. Yeah. And I think that that is attractive to Alice because she is feeling vulnerable by losing that knowledge that she had before. Mm-hmm. And vulnerable about who she is and not knowing who she is and vulnerable about not knowing how to interact with other people all the time. And so I really saw that as a a great character moment in a way that I don't think I did my first watch through. This isn't just, okay, this is Alice's new quest for herself, but that this is also revealing a lot about her interiority. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because season one Alice... I could imagine being very on board with the Let's Restore Magic project, but because of what she's been through, she's not. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean her entire personality has changed. Right. So her aims or her goals have changed from what they would have been previously, but some of how she's thinking about it or 
what she wants to do with knowledge is is different, yeah. Now, I also want to talk a little bit about Benedict because Benedict Penny. is so happy to see Penny there and to hear that Penny was looking for him. So happy. You know, and we even see before he realizes it's Penny, he's saying, like, go away. Mm-hmm. He doesn't come out of his tent. Then, yeah, he comes out so excited to see Penny, excited to help him out, but then immediately gets crushed when Penny says that he's actually there for the key, mm-hmm. not for Benedict. We're not not friends. Thanks, Penny. That yeah, helps. right? Thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so for, for Penny to say that, and then for Benedict to, yeah, come up with this lie that he thinks will kind of push them together mm-hmm. and make it so they are doing something together, they're spending time together and so forth, uh, which he, again, great, he's excited about. It's going to be a great start to our relationship. Exactly. And then Penny ditches him. Penny says he has to go talk to someone else, but he'll be right back. And he's not right back. I can just imagine how upsetting that would be for Benedict mm-hmm. to hear that this is so important to Penny and he doesn't even think that you'd be able to help him with it, that he would be better off without you. Or he does think maybe you could, but he dislikes you so much that he wouldn't allow you to come along. Exactly. Yeah. To hear that this person who you are excited about, this person who is probably the first person since you died and maybe even before that, who you thought of as a friend, who you thought of as someone who you cared about and who maybe cared about you, uh, is showing very little care for you. Mm-hmm. And that leading to him making this this choice, this, this lie that he gives to Penny to send him down on this side quest, basically. Mm-hmm. And so when I imagine the feelings that Benedict has in those moments and how upsetting that would be and how sad that would be, I also imagine how at the end of the episode we see Penny being a good friend. Mm-hmm. Because Penny, for one, says we are friends. He says that he appreciates that Benedict cried mm-hmm. when Penny died. And then he sends Benedict to the library map room. And that's something that he didn't have to do. That mm-hmm. was something that he did after he got the key. That was something that was just something that he did because he knew Benedict would like it. Yeah, I know. So great. It's because Penny cares the most. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I can just imagine for Benedict, someone who, you know, his upbringing told him to push his feelings down mm-hmm. and to turn them into something like maps. And like for him as someone who didn't have any kinds of relationships or may- maybe didn't have any kinds of relationships that made him feel seen and known and cared for. This kind of gift, I think, is one of the ways, you know, it's why gift giving is such an important love language, because getting a gift that really shows someone knows you and understands you and wants you to be happy can be so uplifting. It can make you feel so loved and so seen. And so I like to think that Benedict is feeling that way at the Mm -hmm. end of the episode, that even with all of this happening, even with his loneliness and isolation, that he also is able to know through this act that even if Penny is not very good at verbalizing his care for people, that there is that care there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not good at verbalizing those things either. And 
I'm pretty good at giving gifts. That's very true. Yes. Both of those things are very true. <laughs> the anti-capitalist in me <laughs> doesn't love that I really enjoy just catering a gift perfectly to the recipient. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and then the opposite can be true, too, where it's like, why did you get me this? Totally. Do you know me yeah. at all? Yeah. I've been given flowers before by people who wanted to date me. I'm like, clearly you know nothing about me. <laughs> so why would I want to date you? <laughs> yes. But yeah, I think it, it, it is, it's so sweet and it's so interesting. What, four episodes after Be the Penny, where Penny was yelling where no one could hear him mm. appreciate me, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah, I think he can identify in benedict that obviously he's sad about being dead but also is alone feeling that way and can't even move into whatever the normal afterlife situation would be so he tells them that he appreciates him and he doesn't just give him something nice like a tour of the map room which yeah. i'm sure he would be super excited about anyway but he says, you're going to be very popular there. Like, he's trying to set him up with friends, mm -hmm. with, like, a community, which is, yeah, just very, very thoughtful of Penny. Yeah. Oh, Penny. Oh, Penny. The caringest. I know. He cares the most, even though he acts like he cares the least. <laughs> Although, to be fair, Benedict cares the most about Penny. That's true. <laughs> As we've seen, yes. <laughs> Including Penny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, whose perspectives did you bring? I was thinking a lot about Harriet and Zelda. Oh, yeah. Because they have very interesting kind of standpoints in their conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. Because they're just coming from very different, not just personalities, but experiences. And I was thinking a lot about them in particular because I could recognize some of the frustration and the conflict that I would have with my mother mm. growing up and over time have been able to come to a much more compassionate understanding of some of what my mother was doing and why. And, and I can kind of see that reflected with Zelda because I think for Zelda, I mean, outside of her perspectives on knowledge and her being a librarian and the order and all of that in her interactions with her daughter it's so much of it is based off of zelda's fears mm. and <laughs> i get it <laughs> your little kids come skipping in and she was just had traveled to some other world on her own and trying to explain time moves differently you could come back all grown up which does happen yeah. right and she tries to explain that when i was young i saw too much too soon you have all you need in here where it's safe so she's trying so hard to protect her daughter because of the experiences that she had growing up and i definitely had circumstances like that with my own mother mm -hmm. One of the reasons that I was homeschooled from basically preschool till I started doing some community college classes my last couple years of high school 
part of that reason was because my mom was scared to let her kids, particularly daughters or me, <laughs> be in a place where, you know, there were people who could harm us, yeah. uh, where there were teenage boys, where there were situations that she couldn't monitor and she when she was growing up had been through a lot of just completely messed up dysfunctional terrible terrifying situations and so now i can understand it a lot more even though at the time the control that my mom had over me and my life and my ability to leave the house or do anything, go anywhere, meet people, you know, all of that was so restricted and completely um, dependent on her desires and moods and whims. And yeah. so it caused a lot of conflict, but I can understand that she was very terrified for us, that we could have to experience some things that she experienced. Not that I was shielded from all of that because I still went to church and stuff mm -hmm. where some of these things were happening. But um, yeah, so I, I really feel that like it's out of so much care that she's doing this and trying to be more controlling. And it's not and not only towards Harriet, but I think towards the world too, once we get into her ideas of knowledge and mm -hmm. like how she is scared what untrained or less equipped magicians can do with world-ending knowledge, with knowledge that can kill people, knowledge that can take people's magic away, knowledge that can dry up the wellspring. You know, mm -hmm. all of these things like are completely valid concerns. I mean, we see some of the very unethical things people can do with magic. Yeah. Uh, and the show isn't even focused on those things, mm -hmm. really, you know? And so, yeah, it's out of so much care and also out of so much fear from what she's experienced. And people she's seen probably completely misuse magic, things that have been done to her that were wrong, uh, and her not wanting Harriet or other people in the world to have to experience these things and so her answer for it is to stay safe and you can experience those things vicariously through reading about them mm -hmm. rather than putting yourself in a situation that's dangerous harriet can't do that that's not her personality and that's not what she grows to be passionate about and i think part of what she grows to be passionate about is in response to her mom's mm -hmm. control and fears and everything like that because she even though she went to break bills commits her life to trying to make knowledge more accessible trying to make magic more accessible to people and disseminating that through her illusion magic mm -hmm. and you know when she sees her mom again not this most recent time but when she got her the that uh, other book from from her mom you know, she said she would come back to the library and work there again if they would just open it up even a little bit. Like, yeah. she's not against the library in principle. That libraries can exist and archive knowledge and, you know, whatnot. But she is against how they 
control it and who they keep out from it. Yeah. And she's willing to work with them if they'll even try to change a little bit. It's all they can't. Mm-hmm. You know, she said, us opening it up could be what causes the blank spot. So maybe this is the only way to keep it safe, you know. And and you can't tell me that people aren't going to use this knowledge for bad things. So, yeah, I think it's just a very interesting conflict that they have. Because I think you see that they have a lot of care for each other. Yeah. But where Harriet says, you won't solve things by reading a book only by trusting other people to do the right thing and to help. Mm. Zelda's response is, I've read enough books to know that trust in people is often misplaced. I think she has read enough books for that, sure, but also I think she's experienced some of that too. And the books that she's reading are not just fiction books like oh, of course. they are <laughs> historical magical biographies yeah. of everyone in existence so mm-hmm. like yeah she has seen the ways that people that had misplaced trust has actually impacted the world and people's absolutely. lives absolutely i mean and that's the thing like the more you know about the world mm-hmm. <laughs> the more uh <laughs> at least for me the harder it is to be optimistic about humanity (laughs) the harder it is to think like oh things will turn out all right or people will do the right thing because spoiler alert they don't over and over and over and over again so yeah it's like i I can kind of get it from both of their perspectives it must be really hard for zelda to care about her daughter so much and then she sees her and she's like her same age or older than mm-hmm. her now and knowing she's lost so much time with her and it, that'll keep happening and caring but also being so afraid and not able to demonstrate that care in a way that Harriet kind of needs. Mm-hmm. Even the little bit that they added in there which I loved is when it was like the teenish age or or very young adult Harriet and they were like sign arguing to each other and Zelda was like language because Mm -hmm. of whatever profanity Harriet had used and she's like no one can even hear me like why does this matter and like I definitely had things like that with my mother growing up. Just I'd lose my temper and use a word that she didn't like. Mm-hmm. And then it, then the whole thing had to be about that and mm-hmm. how I was being disrespectful and how, you know, different stuff. And it's like, it doesn't matter. Listen to what I'm saying, not just the word that I use that you don't like, you know. But yeah, so I, I really appreciated how they were expressing the conflicts that they had. And how that that can go down to things that are, like, really not important. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think, really emblematic of how the show is so compelling. Like, Mm -hmm. in that it can have two side characters have some of the most thoughtful debate about magic and accessibility without either of them being the main protagonist, with one of them being in this season, more of an antagonist, you know, mm. but like all of it is fascinating and thoughtful and nuanced. And I think that that is one of the, the great strengths of this show uh, and why it's just a pleasure to, to watch and to rewatch. Yeah. When it's just 
one storyline of six covered in this 45 minute yeah, episode. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, why don't we close out the episode by revisiting the title? What do you think of six short stories about magic? Great. I think it's a really great t- title. I question if it's about magic. Oh, well, I mean, I guess most of them involve magic except Elliot's. Mm-hmm. I but, mean, yeah. he is talking to a talking animal. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that that is just because six short stories wouldn't be enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and most of them are about magic yeah. in some way. And you can say about magicians because Fen's not a magician. Mm-hmm. And so they had to kind of have something that highlights a little bit more. But it's a good point that, yeah, they aren't exactly about magic. But I still like it anyway. But, yeah, it, I still it tells you what it is and yeah. the setup of how this episode is going to work. Exactly. Following the title. Yeah. Okay, well, what's happening next time on The Magicians? So we are going to be on episode nine, All That Josh, where we get another musical episode. Oh, hooray. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you'll join us on Patreon so that you can join us for our monthly virtual meetups. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek geek out. out!